we have Ruth Aylett, the uh, co-author of Living with Robots, What Every Anxious Human Needs to Know. And that's with Patricia Vargas, your partner in Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh, Scotland. And uh, we thank you so much, you know, Ruth, for taking the time to talk to us a little bit about robots. People are anxious, aren't they, right now? I mean, it seems like uh, we've had a, a lot of hysteria about robots. Yes, I think that's true. On the other hand, people quite enjoy being anxious about robots. No <laughs> newspaper ever lost circulation by panicking people about robots. Right. This is what problems, actually. So you see it as, the one thing I notice here, and tell me if you see the same thing in the UK, and that is, we just came out of a year, 2023, when AI would just seem to be everywhere, every pro and con. Uh, is that the case where, where you were too? Yeah, it's pretty much been a certainly English-speaking world thing. Yeah. Um, we tend to follow America and things like this, um, but it's also true in Europe. Um, you will have seen, I expect, or maybe you haven't, that the uh, European Union have just passed an AI law um, that demonstrates that the AI issues are not solely the preserve of the English-speaking world either. Um, the European countries have also worried about this. And what is that? I mean, we don't have to get into it in great detail, but it uh, kind of sets some guidelines, the, yes, the AI it, law? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a set of principles for regulating the the use of AI in commercially available products. Um, one of the things it says, which I think is a, an admirable idea, is that if you are interacting with an artifact that looks like a person or talks like a person, but if it is in fact a program, you have to be told this. Oh. So you must hold that the thing you're interacting with is not an actual human being, but an, an AI-driven version of uh, humanity. And I think that's very good. I think that's important for people, that they shouldn't be misled about what they're interacting with. But there are other ethical issues dealt with in that legislation as well. Right. We should tell folks that uh, Ruth is a robotics researcher for 30 years, previously written a book, Robots Bringing Intelligent Machines to Life, with a question uh, mark. <laughs> <laughs> and your your book now, this one that, that you wrote with uh, with Patricia, um, makes the point of, you know, almost like, hey, settle down, everybody, um, you know, before you worry about uh, taking jobs away and and the, the world, running the world, robots are machines. You make a, a quite a point of that in the book. Yes, I think it's... You see, human beings are wired to react to things that look as if they might have some degree of autonomy, as if they were other social beings. People treat computers as if they were social beings. There's lots of research that shows that. And it is the case that if you produce something with um, movement that looks even vaguely humanoid, people will assume it has human capabilities, even when it doesn't. I think the point you have to remember is that Robots, like cars, like washing machines, like a lot of other machinery in our lives, like aircraft, are pieces of machinery, fairly complex pieces of machinery, but that is what they are. Now, when people come out with, um, oh, we should give them civil rights, I'm going, well, you know, civil rights for washing machines, civil <laughs> rights for aircraft. Why do you feel different about robots? 
And the answer is because we are hardwired to treat things that look as if they could possibly be something alive as if they were alive. That's how we are. We can't help it. I love the uh, MIT Press is the uh, publisher of your book. And on the back cover, it's got, you know, a lot of little comments and summaries. And it says the, the book is a look at robots as human made with facts rather than placeholders for our anxieties. I thought that is a good line. Placeholders for our anxieties. <laughs> Did you write That's that, exactly Ruth? <laughs> Ah, I don't think I wrote that, but um, I was subscribed to it. I may have said it at various times. And indeed, if you look at the beginning of the book, the history section, which is what the first chapter, you can see the placeholder for anxieties coming out very strongly. Right. Because the idea of autonomous things, of whether they run out of control and all the rest of it, it's not a new idea. We've had this idea for a long time. I mean, the whole idea of a robot, in some sense, goes back at least to the ancient Greeks. I mean, we don't know about before that. Mm -hmm. But uh, moving statues, they would have called it. So, yeah, machinery. Um, we tell some stories about early things, which, if you told them now, would be about robots. Uh, Talos, the giant statue that guarded Europa on the island of Cyprus after Zeus had finished his wicked way with her. I'm not sure whether he was trying to, Talos was trying to stop her escaping or stop people rescuing her, one or the other. Um, so this idea is goes back a long way. And the idea of it being somehow bad, wrong, liable to lead to disaster. Now, that, on the other hand, is very much Western idea. Um, you don't find people in Eastern cultures thinking of machinery quite like that. But we certainly do. Um, we argue that probably it goes back to the ancient Greeks, the idea of hubris you set yourself up to be like the gods by creating these ooh, things that look as if they could be alive what you get is nike which is justice your hubris is uh, brought down with something really horrible happening to you normally and this has gone into christianity um you know don't make things that look like god the sin of pride and so on so there's a long tradition in our culture of if you do too much of this technology stuff, you're challenging divine power and bad, bad things will happen as a result of it. They don't feel like that in Japan. Right. Do you think, Ruth, do you think we need to, uh, you know, provide some kind of education program for our young people on this? You know, in addition to obviously learning uh, things that they need to learn, but maybe understanding that a robot is not necessarily you know the, the human well the science fiction version of it anyway at least many science fiction versions is do you think that would help well i think it would and, and there's another side to that as well um actually trying to work with robots um lego robots for instance mm -hmm. is in of itself a very valid educational activity once you start trying to make a robot work, to some extent, you demystify it. You begin to understand some of the problems and the issues. Um, I suppose you could say, oh, well, Lego robots are not proper robots. Well, they are. They're not very functional. But then a lot of robots are not very functional. Um, I was a judge in one of the Lego le leagues uh, several times in Edinburgh, before the pandemic, in fact, where teams from schools would enter a Lego robot and the idea is that there's a little obstacle course that your robot has to get round and you get scored account according to how successfully you, you get round how many of the tasks you manage to carry out. 
uh, terrific fun and very educational and some excellent all-girl teams, incidentally, um, entering in that competition. I think the last one I judged it, the winners were one of the all-girl teams, in fact. So there are lots of reasons to have people work with small-scale robots as part of the curriculum, and demystifying them is only one part of that. You find out, and, and here we are talking to her, somebody who's worked on robots for, for a number of, of years, you find out that it's not so easy to, to have these robots that supposedly can do this, can do that. Each one of those tasks is, is monumental, correct? It's extremely difficult, yes. So robotics gives you a profound and deep appreciation of living things. That's the first thing I would say. Um, people make big claims, usually from outside the field, for the competency of robots. And I would say even quite humble organisms, slugs, ants, are actually much more functional than robots hmm. because they can live in an undisciplined environment. They can propagate. Um, they can get their own food sources. They have autonomy and they have long-lasting autonomy. Well, all right, a year for a slug, but you know what I mean. <laughs> relatively long-lasting autonomy. They don't need anyone to program them. Uh, they don't need anyone to recharge their batteries. Um, they are wholly autonomous things. And we have yet to produce a robot that works as well as that right. at all. Yeah, we can marvel at the insects um, and, and their ability to do things. Uh, do you yourself enjoy the sci-fi, uh, some of the sci-fi stuff that that's movies and TV and that sort of things? Or did you find it uh, too too over the top? Well, I've always enjoyed science fiction in written form. I've been uh -huh. reading science fiction right. since I was um, an early teen. Right. Um, you could say anyone who's into science tends to, at some stage, read science fiction because it's such fun. Right. Uh, in terms of films, yes, major disservice, actually. Mm -hmm. And as we say in the book, and I'll say it again quite loudly here, no film has ever used a real robot. Hmm. Have we got that? <laughs> no. Somebody in a somebody in a suit, right? That's what they're no, using. No, it, it just wouldn't have done it. It wouldn't have coped. Wouldn't have been able to play the part. Right. No, not enough competency. Not even in a film environment, which is a relatively controlled environment compared to um, other other human environments. None of the robots would ever have had enough reliability and competence to play a role as autonomous pieces of kit. Mm -hmm. So very early robots, yes, they are people in costumes, as in R2-D2 and C-3PO, both people in costumes. Right. Uh, the next generation, um, short circuit, puppeteers. So the short circuit robot, which actually looks like a robot, is actually puppeteered at close range and where you can't see the people manipulating it. And with more distant shots, it's being teleoperated by somebody. Hmm. So that's second generation. Third generation, which we're on now, no real machinery at all. What you have now is a person in a motion capture suit. And then the robot is graphically inserted on the top of the actor in post-production. So no actual machinery has to be used at all in that case. So robots have not even coped with film environments yet. Maybe that's, one day they will. That's a good. Uh, that's a good indication of where we are. Now AI, can you make the distinction for us 
you know, is AI a robotic thing? I mean, how do you look at AI now that we're hearing all about it all the time? Well, yes, you're hearing about a small segment of AI, uh, which is what those of us in the field would call data-driven AI. In other words, it's taking information and looking for patterns in it. Mm -hmm. It's a style of AI, um, which has worked very well for things like speech recognition. That is how speech recognition systems work. And it is good for recognition tasks. Um, and yes, recognizing things is, is a good capability for a robot to have. So that sort of technology, if it wasn't so damn computationally expensive, is a useful thing for a robot. But one thing you have to understand is that a robot, if it's autonomous, has autonomous energy. And one of the major constraints on robot autonomy is the amount of power it can carry around with it. Because our robots are battery-driven, and there's a thing called power density. That means how much weight do you have to carry to get a certain amount of power? Batteries are not very good. They have a low power density. They're very heavy for the amount of power you get out of them, and you have to lug them around, which also takes power, okay? And they don't have enormous amounts of storage. Chemical power is much more efficient, and that's how we run, living things run on chemical power which in our bodies can be uh, translated into electricity, for instance, for the electrical impulses that neurons use. Um, that's why cars have an internal combustion engine and why it's taken time to develop batteries that are efficient enough to drive cars on nice flat roads, okay? Right. And even, even so, they don't have the same range because the power density is still much lower. So there are a lot of issues to do with robotics, which are nothing to do with AI at all. They're to do with the fact that they're embodied systems. They're physically real pieces of kit. They are machines trying to exist in a physical universe. And that's just not very easy. Mm -hmm. So where the AI comes in is in things like um, sensor processing, trying to work out what's around you, a location, trying to work out where you are. Neither of those things is very easy. And in what we would call action selection, and that means trying to decide what's the right thing to do next, which humans are relatively good at and robots are very bad at, typically. Mm -hmm. Particularly in environments which are not engineered for them. So if you engineer a, a nice, neat environment, a niche for a robot, you can get very good performance. So the book is not trying to argue robots are hopelessly useless. <laughs> not arguing that at all. Right. What we're arguing is that you have to be aware of the limitations of robots, and one of those limitations is that you need a niche for them currently, and you will do for quite a long time. Where, where would you say, Ruth, that robots have, have proved to be most valuable? Industrial, uh, medical? Um, are there some? I mean, I know you uh, get into that in the book uh, oh, when yes, you absolutely. talk about artificial limbs and things of that sort. Um, where where do you see that the, the biggest progress has been? Well, so, industrial robots have been around for a long time. They're a bit right. of a misnomer. It depends what you mean by a robot. Yeah? Right. Because in some sense, most until very recently, industrial robots were a bit like a milling machine or a la an automatic lathe machine. In other words, though they had arms and they were called robots, they did a repetitive task right. that they'd been programmed to do. And that meant the whole factory had to be engineered around them. 90% of the cost of industrial robots is engineering the factory around them. And hmm. this is why there's been a huge boom in industrial robots in Asia, 
because that's where new factories are being built. And that is why in the UK in particular, um, industrial robots are not as widely used because we've got a hell of a lot of ancient factories. And I think something of the same thing has happened in America. Um, your industrial revolution post-dates ours. So right. you have fewer ancient factories than we do. But still, the cost of adapting an existing factory is enormous. Sure. Um, better off building a new one. So there's a huge boom in industrial robots. And just in the recent years, those assembly robots largely have become equipped with sensors. And until then, they didn't have sensors. They couldn't detect changes in their environment at all. The environment had to be absolutely predictable. Now they can deal with an element of variability because they have some sensing capability. So they've only recently become what I would call a real robot. I think sensing is inherently part of a definition of what a robot is myself. If you can't sense your environment, in what sense is it a robot? So that's been a huge field, but most of what we call robots haven't been robots. And that's probably still true even now. Um, autonomous cars are robots, clearly, but you can see the limitations there. They work fine, again, in well-engineered environments, but even American cities are not particularly well-engineered environments, and God help them in London or Edinburgh. Yeah, where do you see it? You bring up autonomous cars, and I know that's a, there's a sort of a you know crystal ball type question, but do you see that being sort of pushed back or very limited use? Or well, how do you view it now that the... the, the it seems like the industries are, are looking at it pretty strongly. It has been pushed back quite a lot. Um, go back five years and you have predictions by 2021, there'll be autonomous cars everywhere. Right. Mm. I was very doubtful at the time. Um, <laughs> and that's because I know how difficult it is. Now people go, well, they're fine, except for edge cases. Well, <laughs> edge cases is a word for all the bits of the environment we can't cope with, which is actually quite a lot. Right. Yeah. Because, they, again, they work within their limitations. So the woman who got killed in Arizona in 2018, okay, by an Uber autonomous car, which they never got much penalty, much to my surprise. I, I don't know why. Um, cars bearing down. It has a driver in it, of course. Right. Cars bearing down. They're on a freeway. Of course, people shouldn't cross freeways. But at this particular location, people frequently did, humans being humans. Uh, there were reasons in the layout and the fact there was an island in the middle that may, meant that people did cross that freeway, not infrequently. Woman is crossing it, pushing a bicycle with shopping hanging on the handlebars. Car is bearing down. Oh, what's that? What's that? I don't recognise that. Is that a bicycle? Oh, no, wait a minute. It doesn't look quite like a bicycle. It's not a person. What is it? I'm not sure. Six seconds from impact, it goes, driver, I don't know what this is. Do something. Uh oh. Driver is looking at their phone and two seconds after that reacts. Okay. So the woman is killed, of course. So a roboticist would say, however, did that happen? Because we all know that robots should have what we call the big red button, mm -hmm. or in a car, you would call an emergency stop. And it should have been able to do an emergency stop without knowing what it was going to crash into. Right. You know you want to crash into something, whatever it is. It doesn't matter. You shouldn't crash into it. But do you know what? Uber had actually taken the emergency stop out. Oh. is why I'm surprised they got away with this. And do you know why they've taken it out? I read the reports. Because no. the emergency stop was, as they said, 
oversensitive. Uh-huh. That is, car would do emergency stops in situations where a human would not do an emergency stop. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not the news either. Yeah, for one thing, it upsets the driver. Emergency stops are alarming. Uh, right. For another thing, it creates accidents because people tend to hit the back of you if they can't see a reason why you've just suddenly stopped. Right. Yeah? Well, that's why they disabled it. Now, in a nutshell, that story indicates some of the problems. That was on a freeway, for Christ's sake. It wasn't in the middle of a city, you know? <laughs> really? So, yeah. I think autonomous cars will work in engineered environments. Even the taxis are getting problems. There are, there are various taxi experiments going on. And even those experiments, even with the amount of money that cities are being given to run them, don't say bribery because I'm sure it's not. It's just a payment for goodwill and for allowing them to do their work. Um, even under those circumstances, um, the taxi services are still not ready, really. And they've been trying them in the night when there's hardly anyone around. Mm-hmm. And they all hit problems. So, yeah, edge cases. Yeah? Cities are an amalgam of edge cases in most, in most cities anyway. And autonomous cars are not up for it. If you can give them a route of their own. So you could run an autonomous bus service. Um, some cities have one in a sort of concrete channel. I don't know if you've come across those. No, that's interesting. So totally engineered environment. So if you send it down a little concrete channel, um, it'll be fine. Okay. Uh, You'd have have a little convoy of them. You're reinventing trains at this point. (laughs) Of course, convoys would have to stay a certain distance apart. Yeah, so reinvention of trains. Um, (laughs) In environments like that, they'll work fine. Autonomous mining machinery, big autonomous vehicles in Australia, they work fine. They're in huge mining sites where they're just taking the top layer off. And there are no people there at all. Sure. So these things go a little bit wrong. It's not the end of the world. And they have a remote connection so they can retrieve things if they throw themselves into a hole. Yeah. So there are situations in which this technology will work fine. The Dock Light Railway in London, which is an autonomous train service, the line was built for autonomous operation. These are small trains. They're not big ones. And there are only two tunnels on the whole network quite short tunnels the rest of it is normally running on a viaduct so that was engineered for autonomous so yeah if you engineer the situation you can use them but most of the applications are not engineered and i suspect there'd be a certain resistance in most cities to massive engineering of cities for autonomous vehicles i don't think a lot of people would like that so much right right it can find something Ruth, we, we thank you for the for the sort of uh, bringing us to our senses, if you will, um, because I think there is a hysteria or uh, anxiety, I think, as your book points out, that people may need to uh, get over or at least understand better. Um, one last thing. What do you what do you what do you encourage people to do? I think you mentioned with the young people get involved with building a robot. Well, <laughs> certainly educate you on the, the challenge that's involved. Absolutely. What? What about the regular public? What about the regular public? Well, I'd like to say read up on it. I mean, isn't that why we wrote the book in the first place? Yeah, read the book. (laughs) We were were trying to educate the public. I would be very happy if technical journalists would read the book. Ah. Because my concern is that technical journalism is sometimes written by people who are also taken in by the hype because they don't know enough about the technology to understand the problems. It's hard. 
It's just not easy doing robotics at all. Right. I mean, getting a robot to walk. You don't see robots walking around. Why? Because of health and safety. They're unstable. They fall over and they're heavy. You don't want one falling over on you. Also, the battery runs out rather quickly. Yeah. Those sorts of things tech journalists should know about. Right. But instead they're worrying about, oh, the AI and robots taking over the world. Yeah. It's uh, for a lot of us, these articles have a sentence at the front which hasn't been written, which it says, now let's assume we have magic. Uh-huh. Yeah. Here we go. Then this is what we should worry about. And a lot of us are going, yes, yes, but we don't have magic. This is hard. It's it's not something where suddenly you're going to get human. And I'd even say that of software, incidentally. This is not about AI in general. It's about robots. Robots are even harder than AI in general. And I'd say that about AI in general, even, even just pure software systems. Um, people are extrapolating abilities because people infer competence from appearances. They mostly don't have longstanding experience of interaction with any of these things. They get a short demo and it's like, oh, wow. Well, they see a video, marketing video. You think companies that are selling robots are going to show you their robots falling over? No. no probably don't. not. <laughs> they don't tell you if what you're seeing is teleoperated either, which it is in a lot of cases. Yeah, so you don't know when you look at a video. So I would say, you know, guys, ask questions, be skeptical, ask how long it can do this for, ask how much power it takes, when does it need to be recharged, can it do it in all sorts of different environments, or only just where I see it happening this minute? Yeah. So lots of great engineering out there, incidentally. I don't want to diss the people who do these systems. Sure. Great engineering, but it's hard. Yeah. Ruth, we wish you the best. You and Patricia, the authors of Living with Robots, and that's uh, from the MIT Press. And we thank you so much for your time, and I hope the weather gets better. It looks so beautiful behind you there, but it'll come. Yeah. Spring is coming, I think. On its way. Well, thanks so much for allowing me to, to put oh, all this. Our pleasure. Thank you so much, Ruth. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.